Welcome to The Dig Down. This is the podcast where we explore aspects of startups and startup ecosystems around the African continent. For this episode, I sat down with Amadou Chiko Sissoko, who for the last decade has been focused on growing and nurturing the next generation of leaders. Amadou's energy is highly infectious, so sitting down and speaking with him really was a lot of fun. I hope that you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome, Amadou, to this third episode of The Dig Down. Thank you very much for sitting down with me. It's a pleasure to be here, Luke. I wonder, before we get into all the things that I'm quite excited for us to get into, could we touch briefly on some of your experiences that have brought you from Guinea through to Kenya? Yeah. So in Guinea, I, I was considered a failed entrepreneur, a young failed entrepreneur, because I tried different ventures that had failed. And I was really trying to find just something that would work, right? And make me feel good about myself. And so um, I went on our family farm and I stayed there for a while and I started actually farming with my own hands. And I thought maybe if I do it with my own hands, it's gonna work out. When I sold my first batch of eggplants and I actually made money from it, that's when I knew the value of, you know, that this thing could work. And I was in my, I was, I was in my early 20s at the time. And so from there, I got into the management of the farm. And then I started asking myself, how can I make this thing more profitable? And so I started looking at every meter square of the farm. How can I make every meter square, every inch square a little bit more valuable? And that gave me an idea of agro-tourism because we had all these palm trees. We had this palm tree farm. And in between the palm trees, as you know, there's a lot of shade, so nothing can grow. So I said, if I can get someone to camp, in between these palm trees, that's an extra added value for that piece of land, right? There are those 100 meters square right there. So I went on that journey. It was, it was difficult in the beginning because no one actually had seen anything like that. No one actually believed something like that could happen. But I think what helped me was the resilience because I'd gone through so many failures in the past, different ventures I tried that didn't work out, lots of rejection and you know, a, lot, a lot of shame that I had nothing to lose. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, you know, I'm already a failure or considered a failure. So let me, let me just do the best to succeed. And so after lots of effort, it actually came true. We built the first agro-tourism retreat in the, in the country. We had tourists come from more than you know, 40 countries across the world to come and, and visit. Um, and, and the years that we're talking about here, these, this, is... This, is, this was around 2012. 2012. This was okay. around 2012. Um, 2010, 2012. 2010 to 2012. Because by 2012... Uh, the, I had now joined some Americans who were uh, Peace Corps volunteers, who are good friends, who now used to come to the farm to do their training because okay. uh, we partnered with Peace Corps to have them come do their agroforestry training on the farm. Um, and then a group of them with whom we were very close, we, we started a movement called Dare to Innovate. And uh, the goal of the movement was to empower young people uh, with entrepreneurship skills and social entrepreneurship skills so that they can solve their own problems through entrepreneurship. Okay, so, so you're on the farm and you're growing things and you're immersed in agriculture and then you're looking at tourism and, and these various things. And then at the same time, you're becoming interested in entrepreneurship within Guinea yes. and within the local community? Within the country. Within the country. Because the Peace Corps has a network of volunteers that are across the country and this group they were based, the one who was leading it, uh, she was based in my city and we were very good friends. And so 
through that, they had all these volunteers who were now training across the country. And then we would organize a conference that would be done on my farm, like a four-day boot camp, a weekly boot, a week-long boot camp. With Peace Corps. With Peace Corps, volunteers who are right. trainers, other people who are coaches and trainers, other social entrepreneurs in the country that we invite to come and mentor them. And then we also had the sponsors who now gave the startup capital. So we actually funded the first generation of social entrepreneurs in Guinea at the time. And at that time, entrepreneurship was not something that was being promoted even by the government, right? So it was really early in the whole entrepreneurship ecosystem development that we talk about today. And the support that you uh, were giving those entrepreneurs, so they were coming in, what was the kind of support that... So there was a lot of um, like mind mapping, you know, okay. uh, identifying problems. We, we were the first ones to introduce design thinking in the country at the time. Because these friends uh, who were in Peace Corps, very smart, you know, young people who also had, you know, their own wealth of experience uh, from where they were coming from. And they were always researching. And because it was very innovative for Guinea at the time, we had a lot of people from abroad also who were interested in, in being a part of the curriculum that was being designed. And so we would take them through uh, human-centered design and, and, and just a lot of these creativity tools for them to identify the problem and then now start thinking around a business solution for that same problem. And then now, you know, build a business, a business plan. But by the end of the bootcamp, uh, I would say about 70% of them like knew what they wanted to do. Um, and then those who got the funding went on and started. So certainly in this conversation, I, I, I see um, a theme being the supporting of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. But before we, we dig into those things, you're also a uh, Mandela Washington Yali Fellow. And Yali is the Young African Leaders Initiative, which is an initiative begun by Barack Obama. Yes. Do you want to talk about that initiative and what led you to approach it and, and how you became involved there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So around the same time, between now 2012 and 2014, I, I went full into this entrepreneurship development because it's something I love. And so we did, we did the Dare to Innovate movement. We did the first uh, conference. It was very successful. We had the U.S. ambassador come. And then I now created a radio show called Dare to Innovate, where I would go and inspire young people every Thursday at a local radio station. I took over our basketball team that we were sponsoring at the time. So I became the youngest owner of a, a, a president of a professional basketball club in my country. And so I was really involved in you know, motivating and encouraging these young people to succeed. And so when, when, when the initiative came about around 2013, I was now invited by the people of the U.S. Embassy. They told me, okay, there's this initiative coming. It's for young African leaders. We think you're doing a lot of great things. You should apply, right? This is the deadline. So I applied. I applied and I was selected. And so I got to go to the U.S. in 2014 now for the initiative. And it really changed my life because for once I could see that all this potential I had in me was real. Because I could, I could, I, I was sleeping in the same room with someone who had great potential. I was having breakfast with 24 others who also had extreme potential, and there were 499 others also who were just amazing, right? And I'm like, I am. And a, these are people from across the from country. across uh, sub-Saharan Africa, some from South Africa, from Zimbabwe, from Ghana, from Mali, from Senegal, from Mauritania, from Niger, from Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, from 49 countries. Out of 50. Out of 50 or so, you know? And out of 54 or what? So 
it was it was really amazing. And then I I got to measure myself to them as well. Okay. In that process, was there an element of comparing what is the potential and the environment that you were in to thinking about what exi- existed around the continent and other places, uh, what was happening elsewhere? Well, the good thing was I had I was already well traveled. I just had thought that I didn't want to leave my farm, okay. right? Like that was. I, and, and even though I had left the farm, gone to the capital, tried, I was an advisor to the government at, at a time on youth em- employment. And I was telling them that we needed to create innovation centers in every single county and then empower the local innovators with like a sovereign fund that they would fund themselves. And then they'll be giving the tools to solve their own problems. And they thought it was a crazy idea. They thought it was too big of an idea. But when I went to Yali, Seeing already that I was amongst, okay, amongst some of the top young people in, in Africa for what I was doing, right? So I was like, okay, so there's, there's something here. But what it did make me realize was that I, I couldn't achieve my vision from Guinea. That was the biggest realization, that from, from what I had experienced, from the things I had seen, from everything that I had tried, this vision I have for Africa, there's no way I'm going to achieve it for my little paradise there. Right? Because, because just of the, the, the dynamics, we're a very small country, 15 million people, 12 million people. Our economy is very concentrated in mining. It's not diversified. We're not very open to having a lot of expatriates because of our history of a military government. So there's a lot of things that make it that this particular thing of innovation and entrepreneurship cannot flourish at the speed at which it's happening in other countries. And particularly, though, we're talking about uh, a snapshot the, those factors existing as a snapshot in 2013 or 2000. Yes, 2014. Okay. And right? I imagine that there's progression. You know, yeah, there's been the progression, but if you still look at the African tech entrepreneurship ecosystem, it's still very much concentrated between five hubs, mm. right? You have Egypt in the north, you have Ghana and Nigeria in the west, you have uh, Kenya in the east, and then you have South Africa in the south, right? Now, if you expand to say, okay, we're thinking Francophone Africa, then there you put Morocco, you put countries like Ivory Coast, you put countries like Senegal, and then you put which other country? Um, that's about it, right? If you think of Francophone. It doesn't mean that there's not entrepreneurs, great entrepreneurs in other places, but just that where, where is the capital going? Where is the talent going? Where are there the greatest number of universities, uh, great universities? Where are there the greatest number of innovation, uh, in, uh, uh, innovation centers and accelerators? It's in those five hubs. And I knew that my country was far from becoming that type of hub. Okay. Right? And so that's when I said, I need to go to Kenya. Because from all those five that I observed, Kenya seemed to me like the one who's going to really, really like go far because of just the, the social the environmental, the political, you know, dynamics that they were putting in place at that time. Because uh, right after the fellowship, I got an internship at IBM. And in IBM, I was just doing research on innovation ecosystems. So when I was there and I looked at all these countries, I looked at all these countries across the world and looked at the countries across Africa, did my research on them. I was like, to me, it's Kenya. And from there, my mind with Guinea was done. Mm. Right, like done completely. And I was like, I'm willing to leave everything I've done, everything I have, start over from scratch, you know, like like a like a backpacker, but I'm going to this to this to this oasis, right? I'm going to this to this promised land. And that's how I came to Kenya. So you come alongside entrepreneurs, you come alongside young people who are building things. 
and currently you are involved with Adanian Labs, and Adanian Labs does work across the continent. Yep. Maybe you could uh, touch on the work Adanian Labs does around the continent, and also the work that you're doing within Adanian Labs. Okay. So Adanian Labs was founded by a group of three people, uh, John Kamara, Irene, and a guy named Vendon. So John has a, has a background in tech, uh, in artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, in the commercialization of tech and gaming and all that. And he's, um, he, he grew up a, a large part of his life in Ireland, but he's originally from Nigeria and Sierra Leone. Irene has a background in PR and marketing. She built a very successful company in Tanzania in PR and marketing. And then Benden, he has a background in tech, software development. So he also had his own company. So the three came together around John's vision of creating you know, many, many companies and taking advantage of the fourth industrial revolution, that Africa should play a great role in that, right? And so they pulled their funds together. They, um, they invested in creating the first lab uh, and creating the first startups. So startups, their own startups within the lab. As a venture studio. As a venture studio. And from there, they got partners who came along. They got you know, entrepreneurs who came along to the point now where uh, they have um, a lab in Tanzania, one in Zambia, one in Nigeria, one in Kenya, and they're opening one in Rwanda, one in South Africa. So the goal is to build 300 startups by 2025. Through that, other partnerships came along to create another nonprofit called PowerLearn Project, which will now train a million developers, junior developers, so that the market has people you want to start your startup in Kenya, it's not going to be hard to find a developer because you can be able to find a junior one with whom you can grow. Um, so they have initiatives like uh, Africa Blockchain Center that is promoting blockchain and crypto startups and crypto investments. They want, they're going to create their own marketplace. Um, they have the AI Center for Excellence that is more focused on research. So it's, it's a whole ecosystem around the most advanced tech and the smartest people in these ecosystems who love that, but also with now the camel building theory, right, of building camels rather than, than, than unicorns. So companies that are resilient and that are sustainable, that are profitable, yes. right? So how I am involved is I'm actually helping them around people, culture, and investment, right? Because that's what I know how to do very well. When I, when I now went into training, the, the opportunity I got is to train the top young leaders in Yali across Africa. Right, because I was a Mandela Washington fellow myself, and the center needed trainers, so I was invited there. I actually came there to volunteer as a mentor, and then I, they told me now that they have this training going on. So I started training, and I became the lead trainer for the center in East Africa, covering 14 countries. Then the lead trainer for the center in West Africa simultaneously, covering nine countries. And then one of the lead for Africa, covering now the whole of South. So I have trained amazing young leaders, high potential, high, high lead, like, just exemplary with a track record of leadership across the continent. And now coming to Adanian Labs, I have that background. So I can help train, coach, mentor, guide these entrepreneurs to be able to build great companies. But along the way also, I wanted to now go into building and selling companies so that I can invest in these guys, right? And so I had to do it myself. So we built a company. We grew the company, we sold the company, an events, luxury events company. That allowed me to have the resources to now say, okay, I can now walk the path I want, right? I've figured this thing out, I wanna do it again. So here, my main focus is one, working with the leadership 
to expand their leadership so that they can focus on the things that are really important to them and empower the people below them. Work with the startups so that they can be really keen on who is their customer, right? So that their focus should be more on acquiring more customers, generating more revenue than just raising capital, right? And then third is culture, right? What, is, what does being an Adanian mean, right? Because Adania, from John's vision, is like a land of its own, like a land of its own in the metaverse. And so entrepreneurs who, who are from that land or who live in that particular land or that particular nation, right, have a particular way of thinking. There is self-sacrifice, there's excellence, you know, there's commitment, uh, there's innovation. So there's all these values that he and the team embodies and that they want to see in the vision that needs to be translated in the day-to-day -day lives of the people who work and who interact with the hub. So my role is to really help them in terms of building the people, attracting investments, because investments will follow where there's money already, and then finally now building the culture. And, and I love it because it's, it's, it's everything I am and everything I've wanted to do. So if by 2025 I can help or grow 100 stars or have 100 stars in my own personal portfolio, I'd be super happy. You mentioned building unicorns and building camels. Yeah. Do you want to quickly explain what the difference is between unicorns yeah, and yeah. this concept of camels? Yeah. The unicorns are companies, startups that have a valuation of above a billion dollars, right? But how do they get that valuation? It's through the rounds of funding that they raise, right? So they're at the growth. So they want to be the biggest player in that market, right? They want to go fast. They want to grow fast. They want to you know, take over as much market share as possible or as, as much perception of market share as possible, right? Uh, because they're, they're in the mindset of winner takes all. And so the faster we grow, like Uber, like Swivel, like Twiga, like all these, you know, unicorn Flutterwave and whatever, the faster we grow and expand across different markets, because all African markets are not integrated, so it's not like Europe, where you know, going from Belgium to France may not be as hard. Like going from Luxembourg to France may not be as hard as going from Kenya to Tanzania, right? So in some cases, it's even harder to do trade between two African countries that, are, that have borders. I mean, it's, first of all, it's just more expensive to travel between the exactly, two Exactly, right? Yeah, it's just more borders, expensive. Yeah. So now imagine now moving talent, mm. right? Just talent moving around is a challenge, right? So you have to find local talent. If there's no local talent specialized in what you're doing, what do you do? You have to train that talent or you have to import the talent. But then the, the labor laws do not in Africa do not like just encourage you to just bring foreign labor because they also want to build their local labor. Right. So unicorns, I think, are good. I'd love to have I want to have unicorns in my portfolio because there are some sectors where it makes sense to be, you know, the, the biggest player in that market. Right. However, um, for the majority of the continent. Right. It's not about growth, it's about profitability, right? It's about serving your customers well. It's about having this intense focus on that customer. So the relationship could even be physical, right? Because there are many sectors in Africa where you can't just use technology alone, right? If you consider healthcare, you can't say you're gonna have a 100% digitized healthcare system in Africa. It's not possible. The rural populations wouldn't be able to access it, that's one, but secondly, they wouldn't trust it. Because for them, that physical touch is very important, right? The brick and click model works best for many industries in Africa, where there's a way for people to interact with a platform, but they still want to be able to interact with a physical person or someone who can verify. So if you take things like Jumia or Gigi, 
right? So platforms through which you can buy secondhand or new stuff in Kenya. If you're outside of Nairobi, right? And you're ordering something on those platforms, most likely you're gonna send someone to go there to see. Yeah, you're okay. gonna call someone you know in Nairobi and ask them, I am buying this TV from this guy. I'd like you to check it out for me, right? Why can't you just buy it straight from the guy? Trust. Trust, exactly. So that trust is only built through the platform, right? And these platforms are not 20 years old for people to trust them, right? They're all in their five, six, seven years, right? And there's been cases of fraud. So people know that, okay, maybe... So if it's Jumia now, today, because Jumia, the brand is very well known, it's all over the place, and you're buying from Jumia, and you're certain that if you don't get it from Jumia, Jumia is going to reimburse you, then there's no problem. But if you think of, like, when people were ordering through eBay in Europe or in the States, how are they going to have someone in another, in another state who's going to go and verify for them? It's not the same, right? So when you look at those cultural dynamics and those cultural differences, you realize that we need a lot of profitable, sustainable, you know, focused companies that are now like the reflection of a camel. Because the camel, by nature, is very resilient, doesn't need a lot of water to go through the desert. It's not like a horse that it's going to just die in the middle of somewhere, right? It's very resilient. So these are businesses that are considered that no matter the market dynamics, their economics stand the test of time, right? Their unit economics makes sense. Right. But if you look at the growth companies, sometimes you're wondering like, why do they have such a valuation? It doesn't make, yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. But the valuation is more based on their market potential, right? Their future potential once they achieve that, that, that ideal vision than their numbers of today, right? And so the Iranian philosophy is to have camels, right? Is to have more camels than, than unicorns because the, yes, there can be camels who can become unicorns, but let's become a unicorn while you're profitable, right? And so that requires a lot of strategic partnerships. It requires a lot of, you know, handholding with the entrepreneurs and it requires a lot of people building. We've spoken of the impact that Danian has around the continent. We have touched on ecosystems in different places. One thing that seems quite important for startups you know, around Africa is, is owning a, a city that you begin in and then potentially going to another city in another country. And so there's some localization challenges that you might face having to expand to different countries. Yes. In your experience, are there some things that you have seen teams do well in gaining good contextual understanding when moving to a new place? And maybe what are some mistakes that people make? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake people make is assuming that all Africans are the same, right? That even because we have the same borders, that the people are the same. I think people are the same to a certain extent, physiologically, but when it comes to culture and behaviors, you have to now adapt to every country. And so the ones who have been very successful are the ones who have leveraged on other organizations that already have an established network across the countries where they want to venture into, right? So if you take Market Force, uh, which is a great company, a great camel, which will hopefully become a unicorn run by two entrepreneurs that I've, I've had the opportunity to train, to interact with. Uh, Tesh even did my logo many years ago when he was doing graphic design and all. Um, Misongo, I met him when, when they first started. I came to their office to give them like a, a little workshop and get them going. So. Then I saw them going through those phases of, you know, taking time, bootstrapping, 
raising local money first and then raising venture capital, right? So for them, I don't have a worry about their success. What they did is they partnered with, um, I think it was Cellulent, the payment, uh, uh, payment platform that allowed them to access now multiple markets. And because of that, one of the companies, they also had partnered with Pizisha, who I think also was struggling to find their way because they also were dependent on many partnerships and some of those partnerships were not working out. This partnership worked out because market force pegged on Cellulent to get into multiple markets. And then Pizisha pegged on market force to also follow them in those markets to offer the lending to the vendors, right? So those are successful cases where um, you, you leverage on an existing network that integrates with your product and solution, but that also offers the same to the type of customers that you have, right? So that, those are very good strategic partnerships to have. Camels grow through strategic partnerships, right? You have a, something unique that everybody else needs. You plug into it, you guys run together. Uh, yesterday, we were at the uh, Africa China Entrepreneurship Event. And uh, Masomo was then, I asked him about expansion into different countries. And he spoke of the importance of local partners. Yes. And he, he even referred to them as local co-founders. Yes. Uh, can you speak to, do you have experience with other teams thinking about the same thing? I That's mean, co-founder is a big word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it, it's it I was trying to make sense of the idea of having co-founders in many spaces. Yeah. I think that's the way to go. Because if, if people don't have ownership of what you're building, right, why should they commit so much to it? Why should they go out of their way for it to work, right? A lot of the, a lot of the, the challenges that, you know, employees in companies face in Africa is they, they don't feel involved, either in the decision making or in the profit sharing, right? So people don't give most of themselves, right? But if you can build a business where you can have local co-founders in every market that you open and people who have a track record of delivering, yeah. right? Like they, they're already doing it. So it's like you're literally acquiring their company or you're creating a joint venture together. You have more chances of success because they come with a customer base of their own. They come with the net local networks. They have maybe connections with regulators. They have an understanding of the market. So... One of the, the, the startups that I'm currently building, that's the whole model, is every country out of the 10 where we're going have a local co-founder who owns that company 30% in that market, right? That's their company, right? They're an owner of, they're a shareholder of that company. And so the goals of or the, 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 the people we need to help and acquire in that space, that's their responsibility. So we give them now the global support. But then because of their expertise, they also contribute to the overall you know, a uh, bigger organization that we're building. That allows you to scale much faster because then you're not the one who's taking your local team to send them to another country and tell them, go build a team there. I think that was the mistake that a lot of companies did. You know, they use the same, you know, European process or American process. Okay, I can send you uh, halfway across the country to the other side, go start a venture there, you know, build the office there. But uh, lots of the infrastructure is the same. Right? Lots of the opportunities are the same. The regulations are the same. But if I send my guy, like I, the failures, those who have failed are companies like Safaricom. Right? Big companies, even like Safaricom, when, when they would send their people to places like Tanzania or Uganda, they send Kenyans there to go and build a team. Right? And so the Kenyan comes with his entitlement, with his aggression, with his, you know, uh, you know the Kenyans are very aggressive, right? And Tanzanians are really like cool people, very respectful, very humble. 
So there's a culture clash, right? And then they're like, oh, these people are too slow. No. So Tanzania build a Tanzanian team. In South Africa, build a South African team. You know, in Egypt, build an Egyptian team. That's what I think is the best way to grow. But if you have to say we're a Nigerian company, so we have to have a Nigerian captain in every market, that's okay. And I think a lot of these large corporations do that. But does that make you a leader in that market? I haven't seen them become leaders in that market that way. You've mentioned uh, something very ambitious. You spoke about a 100% success rate yes. in startups. Yes. What, is, what contributes to that? Because 100% success rate is nearly the complete opposite of success rates that we experience. Yeah, because every one of us needs to have our own philosophy for investment, right? And mine is focus on award-winning, highly talented leaders. And they also need to have an extreme desire to see that project through. That's one of the criteria is they want to stay in that sector for a long time. I'm the one who wants to come in and go out, right? The only business I want to be in is the one of many businesses, right? That I will stay in forever because then I can work on multiple businesses because that's the type of person I am. So for me, the type of people I'd like to work with are people that if you give them the resources and you give them the opportunities, they'll see it through. If I find those entrepreneurs, I will believe that they can make it, right? And so imagine if my portfolio of 100 companies by, let's say, in the next three years, right, is only populated by award-winning. So award-winning, it means they're competitive, right? They go into competition with the desire to win. Coachable means they're willing to, to admit when they're wrong, right, and change course even when it's unpopular. Daring, people who are willing to take risks. Right? who are not just sitting there waiting for someone to come and tell them what to do. They're willing to take risks to pursue what they believe in. Visionary, they see like five steps ahead of what's going to happen in their space or in their industry, right? And they can, again, expand that vision further. And they have a track record of having achieved something along the journey. I don't need to know you for 10 years, but if I know that you have those traits and I can support you, I'm backing you. And when I back you, it's not necessarily for this idea because this idea can pivot into something else. But we're going to figure that out because I also have those skills and there's other people who have those. We'll figure it out. But because I know that you're going to stay the course, I'm betting on you. So to me, that's why I think when they say, oh, you have, uh, if you invest in 100 companies, 90 are going to fail. So you're always trying to make sure that when you're investing in one, those are things that you've heard it so much now you've believed it. But is it really true, right? Is it really true? Does it need to be true for everybody? Mm. I disagree. I totally disagree. So that's my contrarian view. So and surprisingly, every time I've shared it, when I've been on these, um, these uh, you know, angel investor forums, and I've shared like, I'm, I wanna build a 100% success rate portfolio. I think, I haven't seen it react, but I think people scoff. <laughs> I'm sure behind their skin like, oh, Look at this guy. He has no experience, you know. I have a 100% success rate in coaching. So why can't I have it in investing? I have a coaching program that, you know, is scientific from beginning to end. Any challenge that you have, we go through it. We're going to find a solution. So if I've been able to build that for people, and people are the most complex things in, on the face of the earth, why can't I do it for investment? When investment is also based on people. It seems like the key is you're partnering with a person. It's like the, the, the growth of an individual. 
And if you can develop the people within a business to do great things, they're going to build a great company. So for me, I'm not so much focused on the business side because that's a science we can figure out. There's data, the customers are there, you know, if we interact with them, like once we get to know who is our customer and we know we're solving their problem, we'll figure out the business problem. So I'm not saying that all of them are going to be gold. That's not the goal. Is that all of them are going to reach their fullest potential, right? And the fullest potential of a business is growth. What I'm good at is helping you get from where you are to the space where other people now want to join in this movement and continue. And then they will walk with you. And then when we get there, you actually have the ability to choose who you want to walk with. Because during the journey, I've coached you, I've exposed you to information that makes you have more confidence in yourself and in your business, that you're not just going to sell to any investor. You're not just going to have anyone on your cap table. You're going to be also very rigorous and very selective, which a lot of our founders are not right now because they're, they're raising money in desperation. They're like, I need, if I don't do this, my business is going to die. I'm like, okay, if it dies, then what? Are you going to die yourself? No. What are you going to do? If it doesn't work, I'm going to do this. Okay, so let's go do that. Right? And as you go through that journey with an entrepreneur, he becomes or she becomes more confident in themselves. And that's extremely important. If you look at, if you study the startup ecosystems elsewhere in the US or in Europe, the VCs are the ones saying, we're looking for entrepreneurs to allow us to join in their mission. But you're not going to hear that here in Africa, at least not right now. Right now, it's everybody looking for the investor. And even if you see the investors, I saw some of them the other day, even the way they were walking, you could feel hubris. You know, I want to turn that around. I want to give power to the entrepreneurs. So hence why, if I find someone who's award-winning, visionary, bold, daring, long-term, has a track record, I'm willing to support him. Because I know no matter what happens, with a whiteboard, we'll figure it out. There are ecosystems around the continent, um, and there are people in those ecosystems gaining contextual understanding in their spaces. How, how do we get ecosystems cross-pollinating? How do we get you know the people who populate the ecosystems, designers, engineers, product managers, marketers, salespeople, all the people who form um, these starting teams, how do we get them knowing and thinking about what's happening elsewhere? We have to reach out to them. You know, I created a, an online course in the pandemic called Cashflow Mastery. And then at some point, I reached out to a friend who is the CEO of Timo Lolong. Timo Lolong at Wits University. At Wits University, right? So I thought, okay, she's doing some amazing things. They have entrepreneurs there. So I reached out. I said, hey, can we organize free masterclasses for your entrepreneurs. And just quickly, Tsimologong is focused on skills development, incubation, and market access yes. for uh, new entrepreneurs yes. within South Africa. Yes. Okay. Yes. And they had a program for empowering women in technology. And so at the time when I reached out to them, they already had a cohort of women entrepreneurs who had gone through something that they did with, I think, uh, GP Morgan, JP Morgan. I said, okay, so yeah, I can connect with your entrepreneurs and give them mentorship. And now I have a network of amazing women entrepreneurs in South Africa. And I started looking at how to connect them to other opportunities with other people outside of South Africa. So that's how it started. And then the second phase, when we started the masterclasses, we had entrepreneurs from South Africa who logged in virtually. 
and entrepreneurs from Kenya who then got to interact virtually. But for it to work, I had to reach out, right? So ecosystem enablers, that's the role that they play, is if you're working in a hub in South Africa, you can't just say uh, the people in my hub or the people in my network of entrepreneurs or graphic designers or software developers or animators, that you're just gonna find them opportunities in South Africa. There's a lot of opportunities in Kenya that they can tap into. There's a lot of opportunities in Egypt that they can tap There's a lot of opportunities in Germany that they can tap into, right? So I think it's the responsibility of anyone and everyone who works within the ecosystem. And people are doing that. Like that, I think that's being done. Incredible. Well, uh, thank you very much, Amadou. Um, I'm excited to continue following the work that you're doing. Thank you too. Um, in enabling the ecosystem here. It's, uh, it's an exciting journey ahead. Wonderful. Yeah, you've, you've put me, you've documented me on my vision of you know, 100% success rate. So I have to keep up, I have to keep uh, you know, pushing myself and, and pushing my work and pushing my team to achieve it. So The bar is set. The bar is set, right? <laughs> <laughs> the bar is set. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Amadou. Remember, you can reach out to me at luke at thedigdown.africa. There you can send me feedback, thoughts, questions, ideas for future episodes, anything really. You can also visit thedigdown.africa where you can sign up as an insider, which means that you'll be the first to know who's coming up on the show next. That way you can send me your burning questions for guests and I can tie that into the show. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.